0: Hello, dear listeners, welcome to the Soundologia podcast, episode number two. Soundologia is where we have conversation about sound, arts, and technology. If you are interested in modern experimental music, various sound, unique sound experiments, and different approaches to sound perceptions, this is the place for you. I am your host, Peja Kovačević, and I would like to welcome you to the Soundologia platform and our podcast series. If you have a passion for exploring and creating unusual sound forms and would like to be a part of the Soundologia project, please check our website, soundologia.com, where you can submit your work or idea, and we will get back to you about appearing on our show. Make sure to like the Soundologia page on Facebook and follow us on Instagram to stay up to date with our upcoming guests and events. In our first season, I will be hosting Miami-based artists, composers, performers, and those involved in sound, art, and technology. As Soundologia brings artists who explore the phenomena of sound from different perspectives, I am privileged to have one of the most dedicated and most renowned sound artists, not only in Florida, but across the United States. It's almost impossible to find someone who has such a long history of organizing experimental music festivals. We are talking about decades of work. He has brought to Miami some of the biggest names, such as John Cage, Pauline Oliveros, Alwin Lucier, David Tudor, Morton Subotnik, Joseph Chelli, John La Barbara, James Tenney, George Lewis, Christian Wolff, Meredith Monk, and many, many more. He founded the Subtropics Festival in Miami and the Frozen Music Organization with his collaborators at the end of the 80s and has been the artistic director until today. For the last 30 years, Subtropics has built an international reputation among artists and audiences as one of the most creative, consistent, long-term projects and best-produced experimental music and sound art festivals. This year, Subtropics celebrates its 25th birthday, so I couldn't help but bring Gustavo Matamoros here at Soundologia to wish his festival a happy birthday. Good morning, Gustavo, and happy birthday to you and your Subtropics festivals. Uh, May there be at least 25 more fantastic and successful years to come. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you, Peć? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming to be with us today. I'm happy to be here. Before we get started, Gustavo, I always like to ask our guests to give us a glimpse of their journeys. Uh, What brought you to experimental music and how did you get to where you are today? Uh, well, that uh, depending on how I answer that question, you could take the whole
1: podcast, but <laughs> I was born in Venezuela, and in Venezuela, people have to fight so many things. I will tell you one thing that may have played a role among so many. I, I remember my first class in uh, primary school, first grade. The teacher pulls out a map of Venezuela and a stick and points at it and says, Venezuela, is an underdeveloped country on its way towards development. And I had barely learned how to read, so that stuck with me. I mean, I can recite it right now verbatim. That's exactly the words she she spoke. And I remember just, you know, having this thing where you say, oh, well, you know, so I guess our, our job is to develop, you know, to move forward. So if you fast forward now to to today, I guess my quest has you know, I came to the United States. I could have gone to Europe. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't gone there. But, but the idea of coming to the United States had to do with the fact that I always thought that the tradition of the United States was not so much one of the past, but one about forging a future. It's like about invention, about... And for me, it was so much about imagination, but more about discovery. Mm-hmm. And to me, the, the world sort of speaks to us through sound, and I have a natural tendency to think uh, somehow in, in sonic terms. I, I call it, you know, this is, this is the sound mind, you know, the one that knows how to listen, you know.
0: I think I can feel that Venezuelan spirit and uh, the force that drives you make things better. When did you start experimenting with the sound? Was it in Venezuela, or later when you came to the United States? Well, early on, I had tools around the
1: house. There was a piano, there was a guitar, there was radios. Well, actually the, the the one thing that I do remember very much is the the shortwave radio. There was a shortwave radio at home. And uh, when friends would come to the house, my parents would want to entertain them. So I was too young. And so they would see me right in front of the shortwave radio. And I would just basically, you know, start working with the knobs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started discovering that this thing, you know, had sounds that were not necessarily the sounds I was expecting uh, in trying to find stations or something or music. And and there was these other sounds that kind of were probably in that context, it would be the mistakes. (laughs) Uh, The incapacity of this radio to catch a radio signal caused this... Electronic sounding things to, to happen, and you know, we we spend hours in front of that radio just simply trying to find new sounds. Changing I mean, the
0: frequency, right?
1: Yes, uh, you know, just traveling through the radio dial and find, you know, trying to, you know, ever so slightly move it so you could find something. <laughs> and uh, and the, and the sound of that thing—it was a console. It was a large console, I think. It was a Philips. Radio that's that mm-hmm. I remember, and the sound of it from those speakers it was uh, in, in, very interesting. so uh, there was that. and then you know, uh, across the time, I taught myself how to play the guitar, the way people you know, tend to play the guitar, but also we just basically just play around with those instruments and and I found myself going inside the piano and everything like that with kitchen stuff. and uh, when I first came to the United States, I actually didn't come to a music school. I went to a liberal arts school in mid-New York State. People say, well, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's in the middle of New York State. It's called Elmira. It was Elmira College. And one time uh, I went to a concert there that was advertised as being the, by the New England New Music Ensemble. And I told myself when I read the thing, I said, well, if he's got the word new twice in the title, I gotta go, (laughs) it's got to be good, you know. So I went there and in fact, this was a very impressive experience. Mostly you have chamber performers, chamber musicians uh, with tuxedos, but tremendously long hairs and long beards, right? And they're performing, you know, contemporary music, chamber music. But there was a couple of pieces that really blew my mind, especially one called In the Back, And in the bag was basically a bag that would walk into the stage, you know, four people would bring the bag into the stage, there was a light on it, and and attached to it there was, you know, I guess microphones, four microphones and four speakers. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this thing on the stage and a lot of time goes by and nothing is happening. And then you know, all of a sudden there's a little noise and a little noise and then as you hear more noise you, you can tell that the bag is moving. And then, you know, uh, it's like the size of a mattress. Three minutes later this bag is jumping up and down the stage and the sound of that bag is, is incredibly, it's just, you know, overwhelming. And finally, you know, the piece ends with somebody breaks out of the bag, and the light goes off, you barely see him, and everything goes quiet immediately. And I said to myself, I keep talking to myself after these experiences <laughs> wow, if this is music, I wanna be a composer, right? So that, that actually gave me another push to, to seek, uh, you know, going to uh, study music. But before then, I wasn't too sure that music was what I wanted to... While I was there, I was actually uh, learning radio production and I was working a lot with tape and doing a lot of, uh, you know, editing, you know, splicing tape and stuff like that. And when I was maybe around 12 or 13, I discovered when there was music coming out from, you know, rock people that that was closer to me, Mm You know, I was listening to a band like, like Egg that, I mean, they had music, which was actually very intricate and I was immediately became interested in all these meter changes and things like that, which I didn't understand. But they would have chunks of electronic sounds in it that were like really kind of free. And and so I, I became, that drew my attention. And so I bought all the records and then, uh, it, it to me it was kind of like a, a very nice way of discovering that the recording studio could be an instrument. Mm-hmm. I Of course, didn't understand any of these things the way I'm explaining them now uh, I just simply was doing these things intuitively. And at some point, my intuition said, "Well, you know, uh, you're studying. you just graduated from high school. You started university, you're studying computers because you think that maybe a good idea. But what about this thing that you're trying to kind of pursue? That you this kind of like this very magnetic attraction to sound. Maybe you, you wanna study music. That's what I told myself. And so I started, you know, making taking the steps to see if I could organize a way to get into school. And I was able to do that. And uh, I ended up at the University of Miami after several
0: other places. It's great that you mentioned the band Egg as one of your favorite bands that influenced your uh, music style before you became a composer. Uh, just for our listeners, it's about uh, the music band associated with a British uh, rock scene uh, during the 70s. Amazing band with... a great song, uh, Enneagram, that I cannot play now, but you can find on YouTube. It was one experiment uh, for that time, I would say, with lots of inventions in terms of rock music, experimenting with uh, keyboards, constant change of tonality, a lot of phrases uh, playing uh, uh, with different instruments. So very, very avant-garde for that time. But let me ask you, Uh, the question regarding your studies at University of Miami. What was the program in composition and theory of music like back then uh, when you enrolled the University of Miami and the Frost School of Music? And let us know something about the evolution of the Miami experimental music scene. Well, I mean, it was basic.
1: For instance, you know... uh We've been talking about electronic music. The, the electronic music studio was mostly analog uh, instruments. There were, you know, a couple of good stuff. There, there was a nice reel-to-reel tape recorder, mixing board, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there was even a, a small computer that at the time was really basic and it was used to teach a class called the hybrid hybrid you know, digital, analog, hybrid class. But other than that, uh, there wasn't. I mean, there was a few, a couple of microphones and things like that. So mm-hmm. it was, from my perspective, it was a, a place for yeah, creating electronic
0: music and tape music, basically. I suppose you you had chance to work with some famous musician or so to hear someone who came down from from the north of those famous uh, experimentalists at that time?
1: Well, actually, while I I was still in school, uh, you know, some of the people that you mentioned actually came down to the school because at the time, parallel to me being there in Miami, I arrived to Miami in 1979, and already 79, 80, there was uh, a lady here in Miami, her name is Mary Loft, And uh, Mary Loft started an organization called Tiger Tail Productions. Mm -hmm. And at the time, she started a series of new music. She called it a Meet the Composer series, which was actually, it began because at the time the organization Meet the Composer, which now evolved into what's called now uh, New Music USA, I'm on an advisory committee for that organization at, at the moment. but but before it was called Meet the Composer, and they had a program of funding that would give, you know a you know certain amount of dollars, maybe up to a thousand dollars to if you if you committed to presenting a composer and bringing the composer to a presentation. So what she did that was really clever was, well, why not bring composers who play their own music? And so, you know, uh, and of course, uh, before she came to Miami, or she was involved with organizing a New Music America festival. I mean, I think New Music America started around then, you know, like 79 or something like that. So she could have been involved with the people that started that. Anyway, at the time, she was bringing people down and, and... one of the people she brought was Alvin Lussier, uh, so he came to my school because as, um, as part of their, uh, you know, they would give a concert and then they would come to the school mm-hmm. to give some kind of a presentation to the students. So I met Alvin then. We brought John Cage in, the school did, in 1983, so I met him, I met him then for the first time. And uh, before that, Pauline Oliveros had come to uh, play a concert for Mary Loft as well and several other people. And then there was a time when uh, there's an artist by the name of Russell Freling, who's the first sound artist that I know born in Miami Beach. When Mary took uh, a leave of accents because she got one of those uh, traveling grants she was supposed to be out for about a year, mm-hmm. so Russell took on over the the series, and he was friends with all these people too. so we're talking about Robert Ashley came, David Berman, uh, David Tudor, while I was just basically coming out of school and and then a couple of years before we ourselves started thinking about organizing festival. you know the idea for an organization was for at the University of Miami with some of the the people who were still, you know, graduate students
0: and students there. Gustavo, just to let our listeners know, uh, we are talking about the mid and late 80s. Yeah, now we're moving to late 80s. And so at first was just basically
1: like a couple concerts from the University of Miami. Someone there was organizing Two concerts a year, of uh, basically people from the university at the main library downtown. So it was an effort to try to great, get the people, the music, out of the university and to the community to have that experience. And then at some point, his name was Joseph Koikar. And then Joseph Koikar graduated, and he was going to leave. And then Orlando Garcia. Basically, you know, said sure, I'll, maybe I'll I'll keep that ball rolling, but you know, it would be nice to start an organization. So a bunch of people got together that evolved into what became the South Florida Composers Alliance. At that moment, everybody was volunteer and all that. And that Composers Alliance is main, you know, it, it had a mission, but but I think its main purpose. For most of the people that were involved, was to help them trampling into a you know a career in, in music, particularly a teaching position at university. So, so as those you know as the organization started, maybe it, it was it took about a year, year and a half for that group to almost disintegrate because people who started to get jobs uh, or some actually uh, gave up on music unfortunately, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a a natural Darwinian, I guess, (laughs) thing. But anyway, so (laughs) there was four of us basically that remained and of those four, three of them were people who wanted to continue pursuing this, uh, uh, they already had jobs. Orlando already had uh, been hired at FIU and a couple of the other people uh, took on jobs outside, away and all that. And so at some point, you know, we realized that the organization was kind of like about to die. At the same time, I was working for the New Music America Festival and Joseph Shelley was in town and I had been working with him for a couple of years mm-hmm. and uh, doing different things and... Uh, With him we wrote, I I said, well, let's write some grants because I want to start a festival. And so we wrote some state grants and he he helped me do that. We wrote three grants and we got a salary assistance grant and a festival grant and then a general operational grant. And with that, we were able to establish a position in the organization and because the other people were not really interested in working for the organization given that they had interest in other kinds of jobs. I was the only one left and I also felt like wow, this is kind of like a blessing because in a way now here's an infrastructure that can be utilized to, to, to experiment with the notion of what it means to be a composer in the community which are ideas that, plant, that were planted already from the university when these people came over, you know, and show me their work and all this and realizing that there were not university composers, they were community composers. And somehow there was a life outside of the university that didn't depend on you teaching. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I was necessarily that good well, I mean, I, I think I can teach fine, but it's not my calling. <laughs> it's a, my calling is more, you know, these experiments and the thing. And, and then so starting the festival was my idea and, and I got the funding for it. And we, so, so everybody uh, came together and we, and, it, and slowly, you know, it became to emerge from that seed. This festival Mm -hmm. thing that now is becoming 25 this coming September. Uh, In 2009, we stopped doing it every year and we started jumping. Well, in 2007, we started jumping and made it a biennial. That's why it's been about 30 some
0: years now, but it's only 25. (laughs) 25 (laughs) festivals. We will speak about that a little bit later. The, tell me, you mentioned grants, fundings. Was it more challenging to get projects funded earlier, that time when you started the festival, or later, or comparing to this time? Well, raising funds has always been hard. In the arts in general,
1: I think that the art budgets are never really adequate for the amount of of organizations and artists who seek funding. So you always have to figure out some kind of way to to describe what you're doing uh, in the best light possible. And so speaking about experimental music, it's always a challenge because, uh, you know, you have to add to the fact that things are hard already the reality that uh, not many people understood, at least at the beginning understood what that meant. However, I found it easier earlier to convince people to the value of experimental music and sound art and all of these new ideas. Uh, Now I feel like things have gotten to the point where it's just becoming too sterile things are now so defined in such narrow ways and the expectations are, uh, you know, value changes, you know, where people place value. Unfortunately, I, I think that that is a change that is not necessarily a change good for the art. It's a change that makes things a little bit more expedient, right? Uh, there's a lot of administrative you know, stuff that apparently is working much nicer and oil, very well oiled things happening. But I think the outcome of it is not as interesting as it used to be. Uh, I remember right now one of the major funding sources in Miami is the Knight Foundation. And the Knight Foundation has become, compared to what it used to be, A tremendous resource for artists, supportive organization, and in a way that's actually a little bit more democratic and all that. But because in the past, it was kind of like a very obscure thing. You know, it's like if you were not the opera or the museums or, you know, some big institution, you would have a hard time even bothering filling out a proposal because you knew that there was was so many obstacles between you, a small organization, and their ears. They didn't have open ears. Now they have tremendously
0: open ears. So
1: I'm really happy that's the way it is.
0: Absolutely, no doubt about it, that getting project funded, getting a grant, uh, became super challenging, especially for small artist organizations. But let's get back uh, to the festival. Can you take us through the time and point out some of the most memorable years uh, and events during the festival? I know it's, it's impossible to go into details in the short time we have, but give us a brief retrospective of all festival years behind us so we can get sense of its content and importance. And maybe you can mention just some specific events that you memorized Of course, you know, my
1: best memories of the festival are interactions. You know, when you help somebody who performs their own work in setting up a a concert experience for people and then you, you witness what happens in that experience, if you pay attention to the way you organize this as an experience, which is one of the things that I think conceptually the festival is about. It's a, how do you present this music so that people who don't know anything about it come in, have an experience, and then leave and say, I don't know what happened here, but I, I, I was impressed or something, something happened, okay? That makes me happy. So from that perspective, I could say, well, you know, of course, you know, John Cage came here in 1991. He was here for three days. He stayed in my house. Well, he was around the whole time, so a lot of people were... uh, He was accessible, and uh, we did do a a couple of events, but mostly concerts of his music, and the last one was he himself performing an excerpt of Empty Words, Part 4. And uh, of course, you know, after that, he he spoke with everybody. I have collected some anecdotes. I have an anecdote by by Orlando and by uh, John Van der Slice, who are you know uh, John Van der Slice was my teacher at school, and a few other people about their interactions with John Cage. Uh, also, not from the time he came here, but from also from the time he came uh, to the University of
0: Miami. that was an impressive experience. What was spending time with John Cage like? And can you share any funny story with us from that time?
1: Yes, I remember many. We, we recorded an interview, actually, here and I, because at the time I was making these pieces called portraits, and, uh, or beginning to. And uh, so I had done, I think the one, I had done maybe two by then. And the two were one for uh, Joseph Shelley, which was the first one, I think. And the second one I did for this poet in town, his name was Bob Gregory. Uh, it probably to me in my book, the, the best poet I have ever known because he was all about sound. <laughs> So I asked Cage if he would mind, you know, maybe we do a, an interview and maybe I'll do a portrait. And so we did this interview and uh, and then later on I started a radio uh, project. It wasn't a radio show, but it was a radio project. Uh, you know, if you, uh, I wanted to produce a series that could be at some point just played on the radio, you know, pre-produced and played on the radio. So uh, it was called uh, Fish Tank. And, uh, and so I started producing from these interviews that I originally recorded for the portraits, I started producing some, some little pieces, you know, uh, from those interviews. And I did end up doing a portrait for John Cage a year after he died uh, that was done in Venezuela, actually, is for string orchestra and tape and that was premiered there. The year after, George Lewis came over for a week residency and we spent a lot lot of time together. Uh, Again, the same thing, trying to figure out, uh, he he did a lot of collaborative things. So we, we tried to organize a few musicians to work with him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He was playing the trombone at the time, and his major piece was the Voyager piece, and so we we featured that. And then Alvin Lucier, we did a many mini, mini retrospective of his works. He was here for a week too, and there's some uh, you know he did a performance of music for solo performer, and in the same gallery we had an exhibition of his sound on paper, and he uh, played a concert of piano music twice in the same evening that included, you know, several of his piano pieces. He played them himself, including the the one with the teapot, the arrangement of strawberry fields. What is it called? Nothing is real, I think it's called the piece. Um, and then, uh, and he made a new installation that we presented at the Museum uh, Miami Museum uh, for piano and car alarm system. <laughs> uh, that was a that was an interesting piece. Uh, so and, and then David Tudor came that year too. And so these were all uh, about David. I have nice memories, even though we didn't spend as much time together. But. Uh, he came because Russell was also involved, you know, so, you know, he, he committed to picking him up out of the airport and on the way to the, he says, well, I need like six hours to set up. And so, okay, great. So we were there in the morning, you know, and he wanted to stop at the liquor store on the way there and and so on. So, you know, it was a tremendous production with David. I mean, these are what I remember most about this is the, the people and their quality, the kind of human beings these people are. You know, I think that the, really my motivation for doing this is this... The, I, I think of these people as my family, <laughs> you know? Even though some of them were not that close, uh, We're not that close perhaps because of geography, but you know, every time we come together, the conversations are of a kind where we feel connected deeply and this connection, which has to do with the notion of what experimental music is and all this, really reveals that, you know, sort of like a, a way of being that doesn't require so much uh, regulations and things like that. You know, that if people just simply behave in an adult manner, and concentrated on it, and things that you know could be the things that people really are looking for. So the work that I do is so much informs the way I live. In other words, it's one at the same thing. It's like I do experiments in sound in order to learn how to live, and so I embrace them in my life in order to understand what's the next thing that I need to experiment. About, <laughs> that kind of thing.
0: Interesting philosophy, I like it. Uh, Gustavo, uh, let us know uh, something about the reception and if you compare the audience at that time with the people uh, that attend the concert now, what can you say? We had larger audiences
1: there then and very uh, diverse as well because the people came out of curiosity and not only that, but there was, again, I, 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 talk, I spoke about Mary Love, she had a very cohesive series that presented it. There was new music on the radio also. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Malagoy, the premier producer of radio at WLRN, mm-hmm. uh, whose interest in new music and experimental music it's been there since I got here. When I, when I first got here, one of the first things that happened was I discovered his show was called New Music Miami, Monday nights from 10 to midnight. Mm-hmm. And New Music Miami was basically a showcase of the most, you know, the latest in, in new music. It, it was mostly uh, published music, that was distributed by this uh, organization in New York called the New Music Distribution ser- Service, mm-hmm. and uh, so he, that was his source of material. And a lot of people would send him, you know, of course, you know, promotional copies of things. So you know, he he was able to keep that proje- program going for at least ten years, I recall. Mm-hmm. And then he faced a little bit of a difficult time at the station because you know uh, NPR was changing nationally and he was actually imposing on local stations some you know programming and that that emptied out some of the local programs and his program happened to be one of those so during the week he's, he loses his spot during the week and then when, and that was around the time when the new music distribution service also uh, went under or stopped operating. And so he switched to a show called The Modern School of Modern Jazz and was a, a, a show that mostly featured, you know, modern jazz and free jazz and free improvisation and, you know, and a lot of or net common. <laughs> very, very wonderful show. We also need to think about the artists as an audience. How so? Well, you know, art is not something, you know, you may be born with the each, but that doesn't mean that you're born already knowing everything. And if you did, there's no, there's no reason to practice. <laughs> there's no reason to, to make art. So what I mean is that there's an audience that is very important to the festival, given that experimental music is not about a finished product. If we think about experimentalism on the basis of, say, research and development, which is an idea that's, that most people have a relationship with. Uh, well, so research is about, you know, testing things, te- doing a lot of testing and, uh, and trying out things, right? And sometimes discovering things that are tremendously good and important in some kind of future. But not until the development people develop product for people to consume that, that people begin to have an experience of it. So it's with the experience that people learn to consume. It's not before. So what happens if we insert, you know, a certain kind of audience in between? The, the research and the development in order to conduct the studies and so on of how is it that this music is going to be a music of the future or what is it valuable about for society or these things. I mean the most likely audience to, to get something out of this and digest it in ways that could be then maybe turned into some kind of product for later people to consume would be people who are already interested in music and in art and that are open to new ideas. And then they could, they could, you know, I don't know what the new ideas necessarily are and I'm not necessarily getting behind any particular one idea but I can recognize somebody that's working on something really interesting and I want to present that. Why? Because that may become the inspiration for someone else to do something that then becomes the other thing. So I think that, you know, when you are engaged in some kind of research, you need an audience that, that is open to discovering, you know, the benefits of things. And you also need what I call accomplices, you know, people that are going to push you or encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. You know, maybe you don't have something quite yet, but you know what, keep keep at it, man. You're, you're in the right way, you're doing the... So that kind of infrastructure is what the Subtropics Festival is trying to organize in terms of its community design. You know, some kind of appreciation for the notion that in art we also have research and that that research can be accessible to an audience, right? But maybe it shouldn't be compared to whatever people are doing in order to win awards and, you know, like Oscars and things like that. That's not the point. The point here is not to win awards. The point here is to discover things that are important to society that can help, you know, kind of get society to their next level of functionality and structural
0: cohesiveness, you know. What was the most challenging time you experienced regarding the festival organization and your work over three decades? The the most difficult thing I encountered during the festival
1: was a couple of working with a couple of people that whose personalities were so difficult. Right, <laughs> and uh, that the showed me these people are not really part of this com- is this community <laughs> of the subtropics community. And I remember saying to myself, you know, from now on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens. It happened really once around again, in 1994. And I say, after doing that once, I say, well, from now on, subtropics is going to be the Nice People's Festival.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Putting a lot of efforts and enthusiasm in something that is not so popular and lucrative. And it should be really appreciated.
1: Yeah. You know what? I'm ignoring all this because I'm not really in academia. I don't have to pay attention to it that way. In other words, I can afford to do what I'm doing in the context that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. That's part of the experimentation that I'm, you know, I'm trying to see whether this is actually something mm-hmm. and that if I keep true to this thing, you know, will it really survive and continue and this and that and people will appreciate it. And, you know,
0: so far I, I feel validated. How important is it for Miami to have a festival like this held here for years? or decades uh, at different locations at uh, the Soundscape Park in Miami Beach and the beautiful Deering Estate in Palmetto Bay. Yeah. Do you have uh, a diverse audience regarding, for example, these two sites and uh, different parts of the city that are in different uh, areas? Uh, and how was it earlier? Well, uh, the history
1: of the festival is marked by... The opportunities there are in order to organize in a sane way, right? Infrastructure to be able to, to do it. So, uh, you know, through the years, there has the, that has changed. So it used to be that at the beginning we had the library, then we started, uh, you know, experimenting with presenting things at different places. Manuel Artime, theater, we would uh, rent spaces, but mostly, I'm talking about places that would just let us use the space or would host some event of the festival. So we've done it at churches, we've, we've done it in so many different places. There's someone right now, his name is Juraj Jur- Koch, who is really amazing in in organizing his events in so many different places he's constantly making this i used to be able to do that but not not as easy anymore for me so uh i guess i'm getting older and i i, I need things i'm not on, no longer rock and roll <laughs> so you know car, char, you know like hauling equipment you know from here to there is is getting harder but i i focus more on the actual content of the thing and that and, and, and what the thing is likely to a, be able to transmit, you know, the experience of sound in a space, that is at the core of the festival. I couldn't do it online, for instance. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine doing that online, even though I have seen, for instance, uh, Mills College did a, a concert uh, recently, two, three months ago, John Bischoff, had a performance and the concert sounded beautiful on in the headphones. Mm-hmm. And so, but there's a lot of production value attached to that live performance that allows for it to be a pleasant uh, a pleasant experience online. But I don't have those resources. And still, you know, I think that, you know, basically the idea of the festival, the real value of the festival is that live interaction with sound. So I am grateful that, you know, the county uh, allowed me and, and, and the city of Miami Beach allowed me to roll over, you know, funding from last year to be able to do it this year and those kinds of things. And uh, so, you know, we just keep, you know, it could kind of like problem solving kind of a uh, way, which is, has a lot to do with improvisation and it's got a lot to do with experience
0: right the improvisation and uh, the experience are the fundamental parts of the experimental arts <laughs> and you also mentioned Irai koish one of the leading miami-based artists who is experimenting with his feta foundation and who will appear on my soundologia show soon anyway Let's move on to the festival and celebration of the 25th Subtropics. Uh, Let's present uh, some of the artists who are coming. Uh, There are a lot of names. Uh, The website is uh, very informative and uh, it's it's happening this week uh, from uh, September 16th to September 19th at two locations. Uh, in Miami, Florida. So who is coming,
1: Gustavo? My first idea was to actually bring the, the pioneering artists who are still alive <laughs> before they leave us. You know, understanding that, you know, like someone like Malcolm Goldstein, who's a veteran, you know, it's almost like saying, well, we're bringing Pauline Oliveros. Well, Malcolm Goldstein, you know, I, who is not going to be coming because his health is not so good and the pandemic here has got him afraid. So I, that one I understand. But the idea was, you know, let's make part of the festival be about the presence of the thing in it. In other words, these people are the sources of some of this knowledge. It's, these are the people who who first started to, you know, come up with these ideas. And, you know, when an idea comes to you, usually it's because there's tremendous need, right? It it, it reveals something that you're really kind of uh, trying to figure out, you know. Mm-hmm. And these people have consistently been that in the context of experimental music. So I think that's at the core of experimental music It's the attitude towards making music is an attitude. So I want people to have access to the people and their personalities and the quality of the person, et cetera, et cetera, so that they can better understand at least where the music comes from. And so when they listen also they might listen with a enhanced attitude, uh, more more res- respect for the music. You know, I mean, most people that you know that you hear talking about this. Like, oh yeah, you know, you mean like the ping, boom, bang, ping, bang. You know, and uh, yeah, that's what I mean, but not quite that way. <laughs> So right now the list includes people that are coming to perform. Uh, Jing Hee Kim is a Korean Komongo player. She plays the electric Komongo. Joseph Shelley is coming. He is the main performer in one of Phil Niblock's pieces that I like to feature during the festival. Mm -hmm. It's called Two Octaves and a Fifth. It was written for Joseph Shelley and performed on the oboe. And you know, these pieces are characterized by tremendous uh, rigor in performance, Mm -hmm. you know, playing these uh, tones very much in tune with certain specific tunings. There's uh, Abby Rader, this Free Jazz. He's actually from this area. I'm always very happy to be able to present him. He's just incredible drummer and he has really good musicians. You know, the trio is fantastic. John McMinn on the saxophone and Kyle Mottle on the on the double bass, who is also, you know, aside from being a free imp- an improviser, he's also a very good, you know, double bass player. He's going to be playing music by some contemporary composers who have written pieces for him during the festival. Other performers include some local, you know, performers, but we're talking about the visiting. Once, uh, uh, LaDonna Smith is a free improvis- improviser on the viola. Mm-hmm. She comes from Birmingham. Margaret Leng Tang, she is a pianist. She's an expert on the music of John Cage. And when we met, she was down here playing a piece by Morton Fellman related to a show that the museum was doing of, uh, it was an exhibition of Jasper Jones. So it turns out that for the past 25 years, she's been doing pieces with the toy piano, so she's gonna come and do some of those pieces. The question of Tom Bogner, who's a uh, baritone, who's planning, I mean, the plan is for him to come to do a piece by Alvin Lussier and a piece by Robert Ashley. Christoph Cox is, uh, is actually, is uh, yeah, he wrote a book uh, that came out last year called uh, Sonic Flux. So he's going to give a talk about that. Uh, we also have Susanne De La Hante, happens to live in Miami since uh, 1995. She, in her earlier career, you know, in the 70s, he, she was uh, one of the first people to curate a sound show. It was called Soundings and uh, there's a book about it, uh, you know, and she's she's gonna talk about that show and and her essay. And then we have um, fabulous Kenny Goldsmith. Kenny Goldsmith is just one of my favorite friends, artists we met back in 1993 when he came down. We uh, we put together as a branch of Subtropics, a a festival that focused only on language-based art so it was a festival of concrete poetry and uh sound poetry radio art all these different language based art forms we're going to uh include some of those uh this year but he he's coming he's making a piece exclusively for the festival it's a forty minute piece going he calls it a a talk poem <laughs> and uh He's a very important person in my life and in the festival, you know, he he himself has told me that the festival had a had an impact on his own work. So and then and then the other person that I would love to mention is Pat Olesco. Pat Olesco is really a performance artist. She does many things. She, she, she does her performances, but she also makes films and all that. But the way that I see her connection with the festival is that she's extremely interested in language and particularly in puns. And I think that puns are just the perfect ground for experimentation with language and and sound and so on. Uh, And meaning, you know. (laughs) That's, I think, it reflects kind of the qualities that I speak of, of the sound mind. The sound mind being that one that understands things from the sound
0: perspective without having to translate it into visual. You can find more information uh, about the festival and all artists who are coming on the subtropics.org. That's the website. And the link is also posted in the description of this episode. Gustavo decided to make some of our listeners happy today. So he brought some tickets for the upcoming festival. Check our Instagram profile for more information and how to get tickets for some of the upcoming shows. It's also important to say that the festival will pay tribute to some of the big names in the experimental art world. And uh, friends of subtropic festivals such as Sam Ashley, Carl Santos, John Cage, Pauline Oliveros, Bob Gregory, the festival will get the support from local, maybe based artists. Let's mention just Frank Falestra. Frank Falestra, yeah. Frank
1: Falestra is the force behind the International Noise Festival. And so he's, it's a different kind of festival, but we really, for years, we've been appreciating each other's, you know, contributions to the community. So. He's a really amazing person. Um, uh, there's also Kyle Model. There's some uh, artists coming from Tampa this time. David Manson is also a, a great trombonist, both improvisational and as well as a composer. He's a very good composer, and he's he's got a quartet. So, uh, and the members of his quartet are mostly jazz, jazz musicians. And then there's this composer, his name is Tom Kersey, who's a a cello player as well. So I'm excited. I never really heard him perform before, so I'm excited to... This is also something that I get excited about, is to be able to have an experience I haven't had before. Uh, Another person that I should mention is Jose Ignacio Hernandez Sanchez. He's a tremendously creative Artists who happens to live in Miami. Uh, a lot of these people just happen to live in Miami. So, and, and the other thing that I should say is many of the people that we are featuring in the festival, some of them are not coming. They're not, they were not able to come. But every one of those people I have made sure that there's something in the festival that represents their work. And that's how the retrospective comes together. Um, some of the people that I mentioned also have been, uh, you know, uh, members of our national advisory board uh, for years. You know, people like Gregory Whitehead, uh, who's a radio artist, uh, George Lewis, Alvin Lussier, Chris Mann, uh, Trimpen, uh You know, we've had so many people be part of that. And I just collect them, you know, I just put them on the advisory board and we... What that does is, is gives me the excuse to call them up and ask them questions about what they think about this or that. <laughs> uh,
0: it sounds like a good strategy to get people work for you. <laughs> anyway, we came to the end of the first part of today's show you have been listening to the conversation I have with Miami-based composer, sound designer, and founder of Subtropics, Festival and Frozen Music Ensemble. Gustavo Matamoros is with us today. And I think he took us on the journey through the history of the evolution of the Miami experimental music scene and uh, the evolution of the festival. We also presented artists who are going to perform at the 25th Subtropics. So in the next segment, we are going to feature Gustavo's music, Gustavo's work and his sound installations. So let's play some sound. Mm -hmm. It was the first of three compositions that we are going to listen today. Small sounds is the part of a bigger collection, a bigger series. You said that small sounds are the result of various sounding strategies you apply to recordings, the sound and objects. So explain me those strategies.
1: Well, the, the notion of small sounds. It comes from the idea that everything in the world has a sound to go with it, right? In other words, now what that means is that in an object, there's always the potential for sound. And that object, in other words, we we can manipulate it, we can activate it in some kind of way. And we would do that in order to explore its sonic possibilities, its acoustical properties. So I, I'm just fascinated with small things. And uh, it was because, uh, I, again, my friend Russell Freling, the the sound artist from Miami, uh, in the 80s before, I, you know, I was just getting into this uh, idea of working with, uh, with sound this way. And he gave me a, a cartridge, you know, a phono cartridge that he himself had gotten from David Tudor. So because... Russell actually toured rainforests with the crew from the uh composition and electronics and David Tudor and all those people so he, one or twice or something like that he was a member of that uh, crew and so uh he and David Tudor had a, a close relationship and I think David Tudor had gone to Japan and 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 found some kind of a supplier for for this phono cartridges, and he bought a whole bunch. So he brought them to the United States. So he gave a few to his close friends, and and Russell happened to be one of them. So I got one from him and started experimenting with it. But the thing is, you know, that particular transducer was just an entry into the, uh, of course, you know, I was familiar with piezoelectric elements, uh, the ceramic discs that are utilized to do, like, Contact miking and this and that, right? But the nice thing about the cartridge is that you you can thread things into it, and I think that's basically the basis for cartridge music, the, the piece by John Cage, and that's what David Tudor used to use it for. Mm-hmm. But I think after that piece, David kept using the cartridges, and to, in order to explore different sounds and create content. For his uh, source tapes that he he called, and I sort of like you know understood that as a as a way of studying sound. So I started uh, looking at different small objects and things like that, and and just trying to figure out how to amplify them. And the the idea was to amplify loud enough to kind of get a sense of what's inside those objects. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like uh, this. It's the same idea of cartridge music. If you just use the cartridge, but you know, if you have other amplifying means, then you're doing the same thing. And I think sometimes with Cage, you know, you had this tendency of him naming pieces. You know, like guitar piece. You know, this, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of guitar pieces by a lot of composers, but there's only one cartridge music, and uh, that's by Cage. Exactly. <laughs> but the but the. The name is the name of an instrument rather than the name of a piece. Uh, I mean it's also the name of a piece but, mm-hmm. so, but what I do with the instrument is not necessarily what Cage wrote in his score to do so. And then you know then I met David Dunn who's aside from being a composer he's a bioacoustician and he has several designs for transducers. He invented a a transducer to be able to record bark beetles inside the tree. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a device, what he did was he took a a mid-thermometer and gathered it and then he rigged it with a piezoelectric element and then attached it to a cable and put it up to an amplifier. And uh, this thing is amazing at capturing the sound of bark beetles in the trees. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, scientists that that study the bark beetles, especially because of the problem up in the Rocky Mountains right now, there's an invasion of bark beetles. Mm -hmm. Um, They had never heard the sounds that David was recording. (laughs) He put out a CD with the sounds and the scientists... We're listening to this and he said, we never heard these sounds before. Mm-hmm. And he said, and so they started asking him what, what kind of microphone he's using and <laughs> he started making microphones for the scientists <laughs> to use. And then, you know, and then quickly, you know, he started collaborating with them. And one thing that they, uh, that they found out was that the Beatles didn't make those sounds in the lab. Mm-hmm. They only made them out in the wild in the actual trees, so meaning that this, the bark beetles have a tremendously complex, a sound plays a complex role in their sociological interaction. Mm-hmm. And so David, based on that, came up with an idea for a device that would maybe help mitigate that. He has a patent for this device in collaboration with the university, and. Uh, the thing is very effective. It's basically it drives the these insects out of the tree. They go crazy. They just <laughs> they go crazy and leave the tree. So those are small sounds too. So I said oh, I found a uh, king, you know, soul here working with small sounds, the the bark beetle sounds, and he has recordings of bark beetles and and of ants in their nests, mm. and they're really gorgeous, amazing recordings. So. I would consider those to be small sounds too, except, you know, I didn't record those. David recorded them. And so, so small sounds really an exploration of a world that needs some kind of a microscope, uh, auditorily speaking, that will allow you to examine the sound characteristics of a particular thing that's small. And so And so what I do is I collect... In my studio, like, a, like an artist in the studio, they put together materials and then they make paintings with those materials and things like that or whatever. By putting together little pieces, I do that. I collect mm. different sounds, different things, do different gestures, try different ways of extracting sound from different things. And then, um, and then I make pieces with those sounds and I call those small sounds pieces.
0: Nice. And I love that comparison uh, that you just mentioned uh, between uh, microscope and a transducer, Mm -hmm. actually, just for our listeners, uh, Gustavo used different transducers to capture uh, these small sounds, how it calls uh, sound transducers. That's practically device as a, that is the converter that convert a Sound signal into electronical signal or electronical signal into sound signal, so or vice versa. Yeah, and that's that's a great experiment, really. Uh, you're the expert in field recordings and capturing sound from nature. You recorded so many animals uh, and the sounds you mentioned, Everglades, yeah, in Miami. That is the part of zoom musicology that deals with uh, analyzing uh, different animals and sounds that they produce. How do you compare uh, capturing the sound using transducer and being in the nature and using a fill recorder? Well, the main difference is that uh, in the transduction, let's call it contact
1: micing Mm -hmm. to be more, you know, general in the term. What is happening is that the vibration of a medium or of a thing is being transferred directly to the pickup. So in that process, there is no space. There is no sense of acoustics of a surrounding space, for example. So the sound that you capture is a sound that's devoided of something. It's like the way we hear ourselves when we put our fingers in our ears. We don't sound anything like what we think we sound when we... Why, why? Because when we speak into a room, we also we hear ourselves, but we also hear the room, the space. Yeah, because of the resonance. Right, exactly. The way that sound bounces around. So what do we actually hear when we hear a sound? You know, we hear three things normally, mm-hmm. except if we're hearing from a transducer, we hear content, which is the information that represents an event. Something happens, it makes a sound, we hear it, right? And not only do we hear it, but what we hear is the shape of that event, the chronology of the event, the history of it, the trajectory of it, all of the things that we are required to perceive in order to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we hear is the personality, the acoustic personality of the, of the source, of the, of the thing that produces the sound. So for instance, I have a certain tone of voice and uh, when you hear me, you can, you can pick me out from a crowd just by hearing my voice, uh, which, y- you know, could be different than yours and, and for many reasons. It's not just simply the acoustics of the voice, which is mostly what I'm speaking about, like the tone quality. But there's also other characteristics, you know, the way that you pronounce things or something like that. That is part of your sound signature. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we hear in the same sound when when the, when the sound from the air hits our ear is how the space impacts that event, that sound. The space has a way of imposing its own personality on the sounds that you hear, that happens within that space now now we're talking about architecture so you know i'm speaking to you from my dining room table the sound is bouncing off of the table to the microphone but you also hear how the sound is bouncing around this room and this microphone is not capable of hearing all those details because it's designed to only hear what's really close mm-hmm. but if I had a different microphone you'd be able to hear so many other things, right? So uh, that's basically the third thing and all those things kind of become one Yeah, and that inf- that's what makes your ear vibrate and our brain is capable of decoding all of that information from that one vibration and the brain is able to make sense of it somehow, that's marvelous, that's incredible, right? That things kind of merge into one thing and then you can separate. It's like it's like having a 24-channel mix that, you know, I'm going to send it to you mono and then when you get there, you're going to separate it into 24 again, right? And how does that happen? <laughs> you know, it's incredible, right? So the brain is capable of doing that. So what we're doing when we are contact micing something is we are taking away the third element which is the space. And so the the difference then becomes the air microphone listens to air molecules and so in order to for the microphone to be able to capture something air molecules have to push each other and that happens when we actually speak out loud in, you know, in the air and all that. So, That's the main difference. So the sounds in the Everglades, they're all happening through air before they get to the mic. Um, And I'm not able to... But if I wanted to record the bark beetles, I I would have to walk up to a tree, Mm -hmm. insert the microphone in there, the transducer, right? And by the way, you know, now that I think about it, there's a chamber inside the transducer. I mean, that, that thermometer is hollow. It's not a nail, it's a hollow thing, right? And when you introduce it into this hole inside the tree there's a cavity where the actual bark beetle is you know invading mm-hmm. he makes a cavity and that cavity has an acoustical thing inside so so you know I mean this this idea of architecture is hard to escape you know. <laughs> 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 like architecture in the mouth, you know. I mean, part of your sound signature has to do with the mouth being a hole. Mm-hmm. You know, and the the you know, vocal cords, you know, put out sound and your your mouth can shape that sound. And that shapes, the shaping of a vowel is architecture. Whoa, whoa, you know, imposing itself over that sound. Exactly. So if you were to ask me what's the difference between music and sound art, I would say, well, sound artists tend to talk the way I'm talking now. You know, I'm trying to speak this way, not to be condescending or anything, but but because my experience in doing the festival is that a lot of people don't really know what's happening. You know, they're, they're really simple concepts, you know. There's no reason to to bring in, like, really complicated words. But the people who understand those words get something out of it. The other ones you know, different. So uh, I always
0: think I'm speaking to someone that doesn't really understand. And this actually brings us closer to the deep listening concept that is a training and a skill to listen to music. In that terms, we are speaking about uh, your second piece you chose for this conversation. And it's my favorite. The name of the composition is 85 Audible Moments. Those are small sounds that you found and collected and prepared for one ceremony. Mm -hmm. Yes. The piece is supposed to be uh, one of 85 compositions performed at Paulina Oliveira's 85th birthday event. Uh, The composition was commissioned by Ione Luis Paulina's spouse but unfortunately the event was canceled it didn't help because Pauline passed uh, away before it so let me first ask you to recall the memory from that time and your feelings being one of the composers to compose for that purpose oh well
1: well first of all yes we you know when when the project got started it was supposed to be a secret right cuz You know, Ione wanted to set it up as a surprise for Pauline. So Pauline had no idea this was going on. You know, the fact is that the event in the end did happen. It's just that she wasn't there. (laughs) She died um, before the event happened, unfortunately for for everybody. But, um, well, actually, I remember that when I got the message, if I wanted to be one of these composers, I... I didn't, know, I didn't know how to handle it, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. But uh, it, it turns out that I've been working this way for, for many years and uh, especially I started doing these, I call them sound melodies and the reason why I call them sound melodies is because these are sequences of sound events. Mm-hmm. You know, a melody is made up of single tones uh that are you know often different from one another they're each of these tones usually you know will have a certain rhythmic or, or duration right mm-hmm. and the duration you know so so a melody is just something that you can sing or whistle uh you know you know uh something like that would be a melody
0: i found the, the score of the piece. And there are practically, just to explain shortly, there are 85 sounds from the various gadgets, machines, toys, uh, some music instruments, bird song, uh, radio stations.
1: So I tend to just string those together. Um, I started doing that in the portraits uh, based on sounds that I would collect from the actual interviews. Mm-hmm. So I would deconstruct the speech and extract different timbres from that speech. I honestly, at first, didn't think of those as pieces. I thought of them as the accompaniment to the performance by the people that I was making the portraits for. So, so they, you know, I would make this tape part, and they would play over it, and that would be the piece. And then, and then, and then, it came to a point where I started actually gating the the tape part because. You know, I was unhappy with the idea of people, of the score dictating or, you know, or the tape dictating what was happening. I wanted the performer to have more control over the tape and because I'm more rock and roll than than computer scientists, I decided that gates were really a nice way to do that. So the way, even though those are kind of like on-on switches, of of sort, you know, they, they respond to intensities and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, but they do so organically depending on how you set them. Then I thought that the complexity of the piece could come from the content inside the tape and the surprise that that when the musician would play, then all of a sudden a sound would come out and they had to deal with that musically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, now the piece has that in it. And you know, and you're performing with it, and then you have to kind of figure out how to negotiate that. So the pieces became more improvisational. I was experimenting with all these things, but what I was really happy about was the fact that whenever the performer stopped, the composition ended. <laughs> mm-hmm. If the compos if the, if the person ran out of ideas, that's when the piece ended, you know. So uh, so I created many, many pieces using that technique. Mm-hmm. And then after I, you know, stopped Making those pieces, I realized that these tape parts that I was using were actually pretty nice as musical events themselves. So I started actually um, using them. At first, you know, just those pieces I would just you know distribute them to people for playing like acoustically in a concert or something like that, or as part of a of a soundtrack for a for a film which I did a couple of those and then came this idea that... Uh, uh, and, and you know sometimes just as comp- a compositional strategy to, to follow that process and it's a process of basically uh, randomness. Um, what I like about this idea is that when you record a sound, right, mm-hmm. any sound, you're recording an event, Mm -hmm. right? And that event could be a long event, a short event, or whatever. When you start dissecting these events, right, and depending on what criteria you're using for doing that, you can redefine what an audible is. And, And what I call an audible is a segment of a recorded sound. A segment of a recording sound that I think of as a unit of meaning in sound. Mm-hmm. So I don't think of it in, in terms of language, but I use language as a way to describe the process I go through in order to identify an audible. So to me, what feels like a word in sound, I would call an audible. So it's a complete, you know, it's some, some, some complete audible thing that makes sense, right? That's, that's how I think about the audible.
0: When I ask you to name two books or music articles important for your philosophy and musical creation, you said an English dictionary. Yeah. And you said even you're not a linguist, you use it as a tool to experiment sound design. Yeah. You call these audibles segments of recorded audio representing a complete sound gesture, a currency or event. Tell me more about it. Okay. So uh, what
1: is a complete thing? So, For instance, then... then one name worth bringing up is this name Bob Gregory. He's a sound poet from from early years. The the second sound portrait I did for him, and his poetry was very much constructed. The way that he wrote poetry was by collecting sentences and things that he loved. He just you know that he responded to. Um, and he would just basically write that particular segment of the thing that he found that spoke to him and leave out everything else. So so and I think he wrote things uh, to add to that and subtract. Uh, in other words, he didn't just you know um uh, do as I do, which I I don't really put anything other than these audibles, but in his case, you know, he he actually, you know, wrote uh, poetry. These are really fantastic. Uh, what, what inspired me about about his writing is is the imagery. Mm-hmm. So when when he's speaking these texts, I mean, your mind is like trying to picture every this every one of these things that he's that he's talking about the way that these images all of a sudden begin to kind of interact with each other is is incredible. So so what begins to happen is that all of a sudden you start really appreciating each image for what they are and begin to notice their qualities that are not easily noticeable if you're thinking about, you know, what you're seeing and then notice, oh, okay, that's a house and, and then you let go. But when you look closely, it's not just a house. It's a house that had this and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And you can do a whole story about this this image that you had in your head, right? And he managed to evoke that with a simple two, three words. So I sort of feel like what happens in these audible sequences or, or sound melodies is that by placing a contrasting event after another, after another, after another. Sometimes there's a collaboration between memory and the experience and the instant that you you know, and the next instant that's coming and all this stuff begins to build a very complex set of relationships uh, where you start noticing, you know, differences in space between one sound and the other, differences in timbre differences in frequency, in amplitude, in content, in acoustical personality, all these things that I describe being uh, encoded in one sound, all of a sudden it's like you break the egg and everything that's inside starts sparkling and, you know, and so listening becomes, I think, at least for me, exciting and very informative. So... At the end of this, I don't know what I heard, you know, for the most part, but I feel like I understand something, you know, that's, <laughs> and that's my goal with these uh, pieces.
0: This piece, uh, 85 Audible Moments, is available on the website stilllisteningoliveros.com. With all scores, yeah. actually, Gustavo's score and composition is one among 85 that are scheduled and that were prepared for Paulina Oliveira's uh, birthday. Even uh, it didn't happen, we all feel that actually we celebrated that moment uh, yeah. checking and listening this piece thanks to Ione yeah. who organized everything by the way uh, Ione uh, and I had the correspondence uh, 5 years ago oh, cool. when I when nice. I published when I prepared uh, my paper to present uh, in Wroclaw uh, uh, Poland at one uh, international student conference I contacted her to get uh, the permission to use Paulina's uh, photos And uh, she uh, was uh, so generous. She replied immediately and she provided me all photos to put in the book. Mm, If she's listening to this show now, we really appreciate it a lot of that she uh, did uh, for this community and for this specific event. Yes. Let's touch upon uh, the third, the last piece, uh, Coincidence. Okay. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. about uh, resonance and architecture. Yes. That was created for the exhibition New York, Miami, 2010. That is the work you do with architecture. You combine sound and architecture. We actually discussed uh, the piece uh, before the show. I asked you a couple of things where actually the elevator was located that you did. Yeah, yeah. Tell me something more about it and we can hear the piece after your story.
1: Sure. So when when I was invited to do a piece for this exhibition, somehow the the curator immediately brought me to this space, which is the space right in front of the elevator. It's already not necessarily typically part of the exhibition space but it's a part of the building that he thought, well at least it's kind of protected it's like a little room where I could do a sound piece and not necessarily feel like uh, resemblance of intimacy so I was grateful because, you know, it it became a perfect space for me but I'm not sure it was for the same reason Uh, because the, the piece ended up being, you know, a little bit loud not physically loud but because of the way it resonated in other places uh, there was uh, there was a couple of issues anyway so basically you, you walk into a room that's about maybe 11 by 11 it's, there's no door as you walk in and what you see in front of you is the elevator doors and it's a, it's a freight elevator so it's a big big elevator so, and uh, the way the piece was organized is that there were closets on the sides and uh, I was able to replace the doors for for doors that didn't have any, weren't wooden doors anymore, but hollow. You know, we we covered them with fabric and all that. So I hid the speakers, you know, uh, about four channels of speakers in there. And then <clears throat> what I do is I use that system in order to organize a way to do an acoustical test of the, uh, what, what I seek to do with these pieces is learn the architecture of that space, but from the acoustical perspective. So, and the easiest way to do that, that I learned from Russell Freling, is to create feedback basically. So feedback represents kind of like the, the frequencies that are more likely to be amplified within that space that already gives you a sense of the acoustical characteristics of the space. I just make notes about these resonances and stuff. And, And then what I do is create pieces that respond to those conditions. And then when I create that part of the piece and I bring it to the architecture and play it in the space, the experience of those sounds is almost like a a, a revelation of the, that acoustical signature. So if I were to place the same sounds in a different acoustical space, the experience is much different, less resonant perhaps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, I have to tune these pieces to that space, and that makes it so that every time I might do a piece like this, that's the one place where it can be shown. You can't really... If I try to do it in another space, I have to make a new piece, a new set of of tones and this and that. I mean, the curator asked me to think about a way to connect my piece to some kind of geographical place in Miami. So because we chose the elevator bay, I thought, well, why not bring sounds from Biscayne Bay into the elevator bay? So the sounds of Biscayne Bay that I had you know, when you, when you throw a hydrophone in the water in Biscayne Bay, the first thing you hear is shrimp. And this, this I don't know if you heard shrimp before, but the, the, the sound that shrimp make when they're underwater is, is the, it's actually, you know, they snap their, their paws very, very strongly. And they do that in order to stun prey, you know, there are little things swimming around and they can swim as fast, so they do this pra, pra, pra. But by coincidence, these sounds are similar to the sounds that they make when you're, when they're in the frying pan. So it's the same kind of like the oil kind of, that crackling noise is similar. So, so that's why the piece is called coincidence. Uh, And what I did was I brought the sound of Tramp into the the bed of frequencies and I did that by means of what's called hypersonic sound. Hypersonic sound is a way of projecting sound similar to, you know, when you have a video projector, right? A video projector projects an image onto a wall but you don't see the image until it hits the wall, right? what you see instead, you know, if you look at the projector from the side, is kind of like a beam of of light. But, you know, it's hard to tell what it is. But then you look at the wall, oh, I see, it's a projector, I see, Right, right? So the hypersonic speaker projects sound in a similar way and then when the sound hits the surface that you can actually hear it. Um, You could hear it if I aim the speaker right at you, right at your ear, but then you know you hear just a little bit and then if I keep moving it, you don't hear it anymore. You know it's like a very directional little beam of sound. Right. So what I did was I projected the sound of Trimp onto the doors of the elevator. So when people would push the button, the doors would open and then the Trimp would go inside the elevator. And then the sounds of the bay kind of stayed on the bay, but you know, it's almost like fishing, you know? And so, and then when the doors close, the piece would disappear or something. The, the experience would be kind of like, there would be like a fade out kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. As you would. So uh, the, those are the kinds of ideas that I introduce into my sound installations. Uh, I, I don't make them purely about the resonances except for a few times that I've done that. But I often try to incorporate some sound. And now I've been thinking about maybe um, making pieces where I transpose these resonances maybe to real instruments, right? And then, you know, like have a piece called elevator Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then have it played in a concert. You know, it's just basically, people playing these resonances in a space they don't belong in, you know, and see what happens. Somehow it sounds like a nice idea, but I haven't I haven't gotten the courage to, to, to do it <laughs> yet. <laughs>
0: Have you ever combined those recordings that you made with Field Recorder with the acoustic instruments, real acoustic instruments?
1: Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, during the pandemic, one of the things I started doing and, and the 85 audible moments is one of three uh, of three segments that I chose to do this with. Mm-hmm. I I've been composing piano parts for the for that piece and then there's another one for another piece that I call uh, seagulls mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a recording of seagulls and so so now the now it has a piano bar to go with it nice. and then the last one is called laughter and it's is basically a segment of a project that I did call, uh, that was a portrait of Little Havana mm-hmm. where I recorded, you know, uh, the voices of people in, in Little Havana. And and so they're, they're three totally different soundtracks, mm-hmm. sound sound spaces, sound in content and in, in space and all that, and character. And so what strings them together is the piano. I think they're terribly... There would be they there would be terribly hard to play you know I mean these scores are I, I can't I can you know <laughs> they're very uh, extraordinarily, rhythmically extraordinarily complex because the complexity of the sound oh, gestures right. they're not like in four four or something like that. Mm. but I am I, working with someone that's helping me edit the scores. And she's doing, you know, she's really been fantastic. Maybe after the festival, I finish that project, and, uh, and then I'll be kind of, you know, sending it to pianist friends, see if if this is actually a possible project <laughs> <laughs> to, to do. But that would be interesting. You know, I'd be I'd be really interested to hear that. It's not again. It's it's like coming back to the days where I w- used to write the score and mm. and the. Electronic part and people had to do exactly that. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it after all this, but it's you know yeah. it's a
0: way to release it all that stuff and see how wh- what happens. Actually, that is the transposition from one medium that is recording medium, yeah. digital medium, into the space of acoustic instrument, yeah, exactly. such as piano. Yeah, mm-hmm. really nice. So. Gustavo, who is Gustavo Matamoros when he's not a sound artist? Good question. <laughs> well, look,
1: uh, to be honest with you, I don't I don't necessarily play that much sound in, in the house. Uh, once in a while I do, but that's because I, I haven't taken the proper time to kind of tune my sound system so that I like when the music is coming out. But when the
0: World Cup... Uh, You know, comes everything stops. (laughs) Amazing. Unfortunately, we came to the end of today's show. You have been listening to the conversation with Miami-based composer, event and festival organizer, and educator Gustavo Matamoros, a person without whom Miami's musical life and its experimental art and sound scene would be much more reduced and neglected. Thank you, Gustavo. Thank you so much for having such a big passion for experimental art and sound and for taking care of the Miami underground cultural scene for so many years. Also, thank you for being with us today. And and to you for inviting
1: me and and, uh, I wish you great success with this uh, project. And this is a great way to do it. Thank you very much.
0: I'm sure my listeners enjoyed this conversation and got much broader sense of the Subtropics festival and music scene in Miami. For more information about the festival and Gustavo's work and his streaming channels, check all links in the description. To find more about Soundologia and to hear more about our guests and listen to previous shows, please visit us at soundologia.com. Also do not forget to like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. I'm your host, Peja Kovačević, and if you have any comments or recommendations, do not hesitate to write to us. Have a great day and see you in two weeks.